We're beginning with number 21 in the Ellen White's Use of Forensic Terminology document. And we're beginning with 21 in Thoughts on Atonement Statements. So that we'll be looking at these. We'll be uh, toggling back and forth between these. So you want to turn to number 21. And I'll begin reading. Justice demanded the sufferings of a man. Christ, equal with God, gave the sufferings of a God. He needed no atonement. His suffering was not for any sin he had committed. It was for man, all for man, and his free pardon is accessible to all. The suffering of Christ was in correspondence with his spotless purity, his depth of agony proportionate to the dignity and grandeur of his character. Never can we comprehend the intense anguish of the spotless Lamb of God until we realize how deep is the pit from which we have been rescued, how grievous is the sin of which mankind is guilty, and by faith grasp the full and entire pardon. That's a, a fairly meaty statement. So I have a question. Why did justice demand the sufferings of a man? And again, what we're trying to do is harmonize these statements with the chapter, It is Finished in Desire of Ages, as we've worked through that. So why did justice demand the sufferings of a man? Was it because um, man was the one who first sinned? Okay, that's, that's, uh, that's easiest to go to in the legal model because man sinned, man deserves to die, therefore Jesus has to give the sufferings of a man. A man has to die. Um, but if you transfer this into the construct that Ellen White uses in Desire of Ages, how would it look? It takes more explanation, I know, <laughs> always. <laughs> Is it possible that because when Satan said, you shall not surely die, or when the serpent said, you shall not surely die, that raised enormous question, does sin lead to death? What will happen if you disobey God? Is God going to be the one who imposes death on you, or is death the natural consequence of sin? Someone has to, either human beings have to die, in which case then it would seem to be clear. Okay, whatever happens, you die. Whoever causes it isn't clear. Whatever causes it isn't clear. But you do have the, the effect of death. And the problem with that is not only is, are things not clear, but human beings can't be saved out of that paradigm because the death is eternal. So, justice demanded that, and, and this is what I think I like to plug in here, justice demanded that the truth be made clear about the nature and consequences of sin. Is that, is that possible? Is justice more about truth or is it about exaction of some kind of retribution? And we, we have to define what justice is in, in Ellen White's writings in order to understand how she's using it here. Uh, is it 
is it establishment of truth or and an establishment of what the penalty is therefore or is it extraction extracting retribution from someone or, uh, in payment or, or in some kind of compensation Well, from the chapter it is finished, it would seem more of the former, mm -hmm. uh, because we're talking about not only how mercy and justice are not separate, uh, but also in the way in which death is the natural consequence yeah. of sin. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, she uses truth and justice together as though they are really part and parcel of the same thing. Uh, so I, that's how I see she's using it, uh, not in terms of extraction of uh, penalty or extraction of retribution, but it is establishment of the truth. So they in order to establish the truth, a man had to die. But what she says here is Christ, equal with God, gave the sufferings of a God. And so the next question is, I, I'm jumping down to number three. Why did Christ give the sufferings of a God? Why not just be content with the sufferings of a man? Now, this doesn't work very well in the legal model. Answering that question is, is hard to do in the legal model. Well, again, one might argue that uh, with Jesus as a sacrifice, that really shows the natural law happening here, that no one... Uh, even God is exempt from the consequences of a sinful world. Wow. Now that's, that's a loaded statement. And, and it, is that possibly part of this, what I have felt from reading the book of Job, and, and especially the divine speeches, that God has made himself responsible. He's not the cause of sin, but he has taken that responsibility on himself and said, basically, this is what sin has cost me. This is, this is what sin has done to me. And this is what sin would do to me if I were to do what Satan wants. Is, is that implied in what you said? I think so. Wow. Wasn't the original sin the accusation of Satan or Lucifer that God was not fair, that God was not just, that God was egotistical so to speak and so in order to I don't like to use the term defend himself but in a sense maybe if he didn't take on the consequences of the choices of his creation it's sort of like a parent assuming responsibility for the actions of a child you know when your child is not of age <laughs> and they do something, the parent is held responsible. And God has always said he's our father, he's our parent. You know, And so it, it would seem that in order for him to prove Satan incorrect or to vindicate his own, the accusation of his own character, that he would then need to assume responsibility for the actions of his created beings. Yeah, I think that's all part of this. And it, 
it means it, it, it's a much bigger construct than simply in a legal framework where you have exact equivalence. This is beyond exact equivalence. That's probably what led their church fathers to, to call it, what was it, super, super abundant? Or, it's something that meant super abundance. It's a Latin term. But I don't think they grasped what we're talking about here in using that term. Okay, so why did the substitute need to be perfect? She uses the word spotless. This is one I'm still working on. Well, let's let's hold on that question because I actually formulate an answer here below. Um, but let's move to the uh, paragraph there. And uh, could we hand the mic to Eric? Read, read that paragraph, if the atonement... If the atonement is a legal means by which we are forgiven, why wouldn't it be possible for each human being to suffer a determined amount of time, die, and then be resurrected for each human or for eternity? Would he or she not have illegally done their punishment? Early on, Christianity developed a belief in purgatory, a few, a few that became a full-fledged dogma in 1245 to 1445 with the Councils of Lyon in Florence and the Council of Trent. So, this is talking legally. So, wouldn't it be possibly in, in a legal construct for Adam and Eve, say, to die a specified length of time, be resurrected, and then they did their time? They did their atonement. Like prison, like prison time. <laughs> they did their time. Well, let's, uh, let's move now to the legally speaking, and I have three points uh, under each of these. Uh, if you want to hand the mic to uh, Jonathan, you want to read that section? One, why did Jesus demand the suffering of a man? Two, why did the substitute need to be perfect? Three, why did Christ give the sufferings of God? Legally speaking, justice demanded that the human beings die. If a substitute dies, a human being dies. Sin is appropriately punished. Two, if the substitute needed atonement and could do the atonement for himself and us, then the doctrine of purgatory would be valid. Three, if the substitute needs no atonement, then as a sinless sacrifice, the substitute was not atoning for his own sins, but for the sins of others. See, in, in medieval Christianity, a person could atone for their own sins. Because legally speaking, if... Uh, you can pay, if, if someone can pay for your sins and, and, and do the punishment for you, and a punishment is retribution, it's extraction of penalty, why couldn't they? Why couldn't someone do that for you or a person do it for themselves? So I, I, that's where I'm going on this. I'm suggesting that if we're really to be true to a legal construct, purgatory makes sense. Okay. Uh, Dorothy, would you be willing to read the morally spirit and spiritually speaking, not legally, section? Sure. 1. Sin led to suffering and ultimately to death. Divine justice rests upon the law and the way the law works, inherent and inevitable consequences. Therefore, justice, as in the law, does demand that cause and effect play out in this sin-led to death. 
If the substitute does not need to atone for his own sins because he is sinless, then his atonement truly is all for us and not for God. It is our sins that require atonement if we are to be saved. 3. If the substitute had to make atonement for himself, it would not be clear that sin inevitably leads to death. What caused him to die? What would still would still be the question raised? And even if the substitute were only human but sinless, his death would not fully answer the question who or what caused him to die. But if the substitute were both human and divine, the question would forever be settled about what caused his death. If God himself enters into human flesh and experiences the consequences of sin, then it is settled. Satan can't claim that God doesn't know the truth or that God had manipulated things so that he has killed himself. Do you think that's true? I, I, I'm testing this on you, in a sense. Could you explain the, the fully human and fully God part again? What I, what I say here is, if the substitute were both human and divine, it is because there's no sin in him, and he's fully God and, and fully human, it's almost like having both the scientific problem and the control all at once. Is that possible? Oh, that just clicked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Because the only way, if, if God is the one who executes sinners, it really does boil down to the question, is God going to execute? Is, is, is that what sin, is, the penalty is? Is God going to execute us? And it, so it boils down to that question. And we have to then ask the question, how did Jesus die? It isn't just as simple as saying, well, because he died and he was God and, and human, uh, and he suffered as both God and human. It, it's not as simple as saying, well, that, that proves, which I, I took a shortcut here, really, to say that. But I, I think it's not as simple as that. We have to ask, how did he die? What was the Father's role in this? Uh, what is really happening? But it, it's, it's much clearer. It would be very muddy if he were sinful, because then he would be making atonement for himself. And then purgatory is right. And we are in a legal construct. Uh, if, if he is not God and he's simply a perfect human being, it's clearer. But how do we know that God didn't really pull the plug and didn't really execute him in some way? But if it is God taking on himself and God in Christ suffering the sufferings of a God, then we is it is it likely and and this is where we're going to have to wrestle with Stott eventually. Stott maintains that God inflicted the penalty on himself in Christ, which I guess works in a in a certain logical framework, but not in an experiential one. Well, and within this experiential framework, it is really the perception of what's happening that matters. Exactly. If there is a whole universe or multiverse, uh, looking on at what is happening in this, dare I say, divine experiment then, to use your metaphor of control, mm -hmm. uh, this would be proof, positive, that sin, whoever 
whatever is put within a system of sin, that's going to lead to death. Yeah. Even even for God, if God were to to do this, it, it, it would lead to the destruction of the whole universe. Moral cause and effect. Exactly. I saw a cartoon last night, just to, just to um, lighten this a little bit because we're in pretty heavy and deep here. Um, I saw a cartoon last night on Facebook. The cartoon showed God taking his children and saying, they disobey me, I throw them into the fire. And on the other side of the picture, so, so here are these children getting thrown into the fire. Here's God in the middle. And on the other side, there's the officers of the law with the guns pointed and saying, we, you know, halt. Um, <laughs> I can't remember what it actually said, but it was, they were stopping him and they were going to arrest him. You are under arrest. That was it. You are under arrest. Oh, is that you, God? Well, you can do anything you want. And, and it, I have heard this said by forensic theologians that God can do anything he wants. There is no law outside himself that he must adhere to. He is the law. So whatever he chooses is, is it. And what that really suggests about God is what? What does that suggest about God? He can do anything he wants. He is the law. Arbitrary. He's arbitrary. That's, that's, uh, that's actually a, a weak word. <laughs> I, I would suggest he's, he's an absolute tyrant, dictator, um, etc. So it seems to me that, yes, I believe that God is the embodiment of the law, but the law is eternal and unavoidable. It works. And because it is descriptive. You know, we talked about this when we talked about the word arbitrary, that lawyers rest their defense not upon truth, but upon their ability to manipulate and control the evidence and the law. And more than that, in a legal construct, the law can always be changed. Just as a plug-in for that article... Uh, one of the things that really struck me was just how different that system was from the common legal system. So when you read that article, I would keep that in mind. Okay. I don't think it would take too much heart, too much brain power to remember. There's such a stark contrast. Yeah. Well, the more you get into legal thinking, and, and I, I think there is a, a whole framework of legal thinking um, that the more you get into that the less in touch I think you are with heart, mind experience the way we work, the way we operate because legal thinking and natural law well they have been try, some have tried to put them together and tried to uh, maintain that they are really one and the same thing, that only rests upon the assumption, certain assumptions, that the natural law is arbitrarily created by God and works in an arbitrary manner and God manipulates it like lawyers do the law. So anything, any other comments or, or questions about this? We really got in deep this time.
<laughs> okay, then let's move to number 22. And Alex, I think it's your turn. The divine Son of God was the only sacrifice of sufficient value to fully satisfy the claims of God's perfect law. The angels were sinless, but of less value than the law of God. They were amenable to law. They were messengers to do the will of Christ and before him to bow. They were created beings and probationers. Upon Christ, no requirements were laid. He had power to lay down his life and to take it again. No obligation was laid upon him to undertake the work of atonement. It was a voluntary sacrifice that he had made. His life was of sufficient value to rescue man from his fallen condition. Before we read uh, the next document on this, I hope you remember his life was of sufficient value to rescue man from his fallen condition. Because when we talk about the merits of Christ, she uses that term a lot. This is what she's talking about. Okay, so uh, once again, this statement elicits several questions. And we'll start with the last one. What makes a sacrifice of sufficient value? Is it because, speaking legally, Christ suffered every particle of retribution God's anger could inflict upon him? Or is it of sufficient value because it made everything clear, absolutely unmistakably clear? It unveiled the truth. See, those are, those are the two we have to choose between. And I don't think, I don't think you can have easily both and. Because, because the construct is different. And what makes everything different, and this, we're going to probably come to this again and again, what makes everything different is the nature of those consequences of sin. Is it God executing sinners? Or is it giving them over to the consequences of sin? Is, the, is it the inevitable consequences, to use Ellen White's term? Or is it God inflicting it, you see? And, and everything hinges on that. Uh, and you can't have it both ends. You can't have God... I've had a friend of mine one time encountered my theology at Loma Linda, and she spouted to me, I don't see what the difference is between dishing the water out of the bathtub and pulling the plug and letting the water go. I don't see any difference between God doing it and it happening as a result of sin. And I don't remember if I used this illustration, but I have on other people... Uh, what is the difference between if you have a son who is determined to run in front of cars, what is the difference between when he's of age? This is a high, very hypothetical illustration. <laughs> but when he's old enough to know better, and you have to let him go, you have to let him do what he chooses to do, uh, what is the difference between letting him run in front of a car and taking him and throwing him in front of a car? When, it, when we're not dealing with bath water, suddenly everything changes <laughs> when we're dealing with people. Now, I think a loving parent, before he would let his son run in front of a car, would say, let me do that first and let you see the consequences. And, and to me, this is what atonement is about. So, uh, number two, question number two, what does it mean to fully satisfy the claims of God's perfect law. 
we may need to unpack what's in the quotation marks. Yeah, what is, what is the fully satisfy the claims of God's perfect law? What does that mean? I, I think like in in our construct here, the perfect law is referring to the natural law, uh, which then makes me wonder: so why is she using the word claims? Is it she uses that? You know, I I don't know if you remember the statement in uh, Great Controversy, page thirty-six, where she says that God does not stand. Uh, as the executioner of the sentence against transgression. Look at page 2 of the document we're on right now. Let, let, why don't we start on page 1? This is under statement number 13. So we do not know how much we owe to Christ for peace and protection which we enjoy is the restraining power of God and so on. Uh, but, moving down to the third from the end, but when men pass the limits of divine forbearance, that restraint is removed. God does not stand toward the sinner as an executioner of the sentence against transgression, but he leaves the rejectors of his mercy to themselves to reap that which they have sown. Every ray of light rejected, every warning despised or unheeded, every passion indulged, every transgression of the law, of God is a seed sown which yields its unfailing harvest. She loves to use the reaping and sowing principle <sighs> because it is so part of a natural law construct. The Spirit of God persistently resisted is at last withdrawn from the sinner and then there is left no power to control the evil passions of the soul and no protection from the malice and enmity of Satan. The destruction of Jerusalem is a fearful and solemn warning to all who are trifling with offers of divine grace and resisting the pleadings of divine mercy. Now she comes down. Never was there given a more decisive testimony to God's hatred of sin and the certain punishment. She uses the word punishment here that will fall upon the guilty. So when she uses penalty, punishment, uh, hatred of sin and all of that, she's meaning exactly what we're talking about. And, and this, is, this is why I think she made it very clear that when it comes to inspiration of, of the Bible and, and of her writings, uh, the language is not inspired. And she says everything, she says the language is human and everything that is human is imperfect. So we're dealing with the imperfections of language. And this is why we have to contextually read these things uh, to make sure that we understand what is being said. Um, when it asks, um, what does it mean to fully satisfy the claims of God's perfect law? Well, I remember that, that God's law is descriptive. So um, those claims are the descriptions of the law. So to fully... <clears throat> um, show that uh, show the, those descriptions I, I guess um, I guess God is manifesting the law he's, he's living it out living it and he's dying it out right. with it's broken that that's beautiful Anybody improve on that? <laughs> uh, I can't. That's very good. So, number three, why would angels be of less value than the law? Could it potentially be because they are created beings as opposed to 
being God because in the I think in, there are a few places where it says that God is the law and that you can't and to try to compare the angels to the law is like apples to oranges well, that and also I think uh, if, if our model is correct the angels also didn't understand what was happening uh, and this this was actually a demonstration for them as well so to try to put one who didn't understand through this would not have been a good example it wouldn't have it wouldn't have worked but building on all the three comments that have just been made <laughs> if i can if i can put, bring them together what we're saying is that when jesus does this as god and as man he lives out the law, I and mean, keeping in mind the law is the law of love. He lives out that law because that law is dependent on God to, to operate. Love is dynamic, and we love because he first loved us. This is living law. This is not a dead piece of paper or a tablets of stone. Uh, the tablets of stone are hugely adapted for us. Uh, they do not begin to unpack the whole living nature of the law. So God, by Jesus coming as God and living out this love paradigm, this love dynamic principle that awakens love, to use Ellen White's terminology, and then dying. This is, this is what happens when the law of love is broken whether I'm God or whether I'm man. This is the suffering it causes. This is where it leads. It's, it's absolute, it's permanent, it's unvarying, it's eternal. So number question number four, why were no requirements laid on Christ? Now this, this you, if, you, if you read this in a legal construct, God can do anything you want, so that's why no requirements are laid on him. Well, uh, let's take that. Let's run with it for a moment. If the law is the law of love, and God can do anything he wants, what is it that he wants to do if he is love? He wants to love. <laughs> and, and so, God is... No, no one can demand anything from God. And what that suggests is that the law is built on freedom. It is wholly voluntary. No one can require love. Ellen White says that love cannot be commanded. You can't require love. You can only love and in response to love. Love. That's the way the law works. Does that make sense, or am I... Okay. So question number five. We'll try to get through at least this much today. Oh, I have a whole bunch of answers, don't I? Maybe we don't... Maybe we don't need them. <laughs> maybe we've already been answering them. How does the... Fa question number five. What is the significance of the statement, he had power to lay down his life and to take it again? Now, this is quoting Jesus, actually. Um, no one takes my life from me. Not even the Father. I have the power to lay down my life and the power to take it again. What, what is that? What is the significance of that statement? Does that mean it was ultimately up to 
Christ to to carry the mission to fruition. I rhymed, but <laughs> the mission to fruition. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Uh, this voluntary nature of love. So that not even the consequences, the natural consequences of death, they are all completely voluntary. And this reminds me of something that uh, Ken Hart used to say that I never quite understood and never quite accepted. But I'm beginning to think he, he nailed something. He believes, and I've heard others say this, that at the end of the, of the millennium when the wicked are... the wicked are... Well, they die. <laughs> okay? I almost said destroyed, and that's not our construct. And when they, when they receive the consequences of sin, he believes because it is such an emotional experience that they actually... It's, it's an agonizing struggle to fully say, God is right, this is the way he is, and I have chosen this way. And this is the way I'm going to do. And that's what actually they finally lay down their lives. Um, that it's not uh, that they just self-destruct. This is the way, the kind of the model I've always fallen, followed. But I'm, I'm thinking if, if Jesus had the power to lay down his life and the power to take it again, this, this points to the, the real voluntary nature of love and the voluntary nature of the law, so that if you break the law, even the consequences of breaking it are voluntary. You have chosen that, and you choose it at each step of the way. Does that make sense? Or am I in too deep again? I'm just trying to tie this into the inevitability of the consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how does that... How do, how do we have voluntary the voluntary nature of love with the inevitable consequences of breaking that law. Well, I guess we're, we're talking about a voluntary cause and an inevitable uh, effect. So, so the cause of Jesus' death is voluntary. He chose to do this, but it's, he did suffer the inevitable consequences of sin. And that does make sense. But... Uh, Inevitable consequences works best if we understand, I think, and this is what I was going to say. Inevitable consequences works best if we understand that sin so hardens the mind that there is a point of no return. Where a person reaches us as point in his life where he he cannot turn around. He cannot choose other than... Uh, Alan White talks about that with Lucifer. Uh, that there was a point at which he could not... He had made his decision in the full knowledge of God, in the full light of his glory. And not because God said, well, you can't turn around, I'm not going to let you. It's that the mind actually becomes set and it cannot turn around. So I, I think there's that part of the inevitability that we need to kind of keep in mind. Okay, let's do number number six and then we'll have to quit. 
How does the fact that Christ voluntarily took on the atonement explain the above statement? Why did Christ need to make a voluntary sacrifice in order to satisfy the claims of the law? And I think we've answered that, actually. That love is voluntary. Uh, You can't require it. You can't command it. And no one can... The reason no one can tell God what to do or there can't be something outside of him is not because he is a dictator and can do anything he wants arbitrarily. He could make the universe any way he wanted and operate it any way he wanted. It's not that. It is that love, the very God is love, and the very nature of love, you can't require something outside of it when they are the source of love. Any last thoughts or observations before our time is up? But I'm going to be playing with this. Yes. This is not something, this is not, today's discussion is not something you can just go, oh, that was interesting. <laughs> to do that is to lose it all. <laughs> it's something we have to keep thinking about. I will definitely chew on this. Okay, very good. Let's have closing prayer. Father, we thank you so much for being with us in this discussion, for uh, deepening our thoughts and, and making this, helping us to think more largely and more deeply about you. We pray that uh, what we have discussed and thought about today will stay with us uh, and that we will be able to fully assimilate the, these thoughts. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.